Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. My guest today is a genuine first, unique amongst our guests so far on a podcast of one's own because he's a man. Obviously, that means he can't share personal experiences in the way my guests usually do. But once I read his book, provocatively titled, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It, I knew we had to have him on. I have drawn on his work in my own book on women and leadership and we've written articles together on the gendered impact of COVID. I am fascinated by his ideas, and I know you will be too. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome Thomas Jamaro, Premusic, Professor of Business Psychology at University College London and Columbia University, to a podcast of one's own. Thomas, what a title for your book. I wonder if you imagined women all over the world sitting in public places, cafes, parks, trains, buses, gleefully pulling out your book for all the men around them to see when you penned that title. Well, first, it's a great pleasure to be here and thank you for having me, you know, on the book. No, I didn't imagine. One always hopes that books are successful. In this case, in the introduction or sort of the acknowledgements, the last line, a little bit tongue in cheek, you know, I sort of thanked all the incompetent men who become leaders because I thought there would always be a good sales force for the book. So in a way, it's a little bit of a mixed blessing because I think the success of the book is fueled or prompted by things not getting much better. I'd rather not sell any books at all and this be an obscure kind of metaphysics title and the world be a better place. But, you know, I guess this is sort of the collateral benefit for me or the publisher, at least. (laughs) That's true. I think we're all aiming for that world, but the book is very, very useful. And we're going to talk about the research behind your book. But first, I want to help our listeners understand a bit more about what you do. The opening line on your website reads, I use science and tech to help organisations predict human performance. Can you explain what do you mean by that? So, you know, first, I'm an organizational psychologist. That's like a psychologist, but instead of dealing with individuals who have problems, my clients or patients, if you like, tend to be organizations. And they connect to people for the simple fact that most, if not all of the problems that organizations have are people problems, how to manage them, how to select them, how to develop them, how to keep them motivated. And the part about using science and tech is really that technology has become a very good vehicle for gathering data on human behavior. 
it can be contrary to popular belief done in a very ethical and transparent way, which is the way we always did it in science with informed consent and transparency and giving something back to the people like feedback that enables them to understand themselves. So really I'm kind of like a personality psychologist, but applied to the workplace. And the area that I've been studying for the past 15 or 20 years is leadership psychology, because if you can help organizations deal with their leaders, everyone wins. And that is true whether you are looking at public organizations, the corporate sector or politics, an area that you, of course, know so well. I'm really keen to understand what it is that made you interested in this area. Can you tell us a bit about your background, about what led you to pursue a career like this and why it's particularly led you to be so fascinated by leadership and personality? I mean, you did grow up, didn't you, in a what you describe as a military Catholic family. So it seems a big journey to where you are now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I also grew up in, it is quite telling, the context always either influences us or at least when you try to make meaningful interpretations and retrospectively interpret why you do things, you look for signals that are meaningful to you. So I grew up in Argentina, which I think is the only perpetually declining country in the world or in modern history. You know, for the past 150 years, we're going down on any metric of objective and subjective well-being. We were one of the richest countries in the world at the end of the 19th century richer than France or Germany. And then, you know, things started to go worse and worse after that. So that got me interested in leadership because the only explanation for why a country with so many resources, human and natural, can continuously implode or do poorly is because it's not very well managed. And then I also grew up in a specific area of Buenos Aires called Villa Freud that actually boasts the highest concentration of shrinks per capita in the world. You know, I think it's a self-fulfilling or self-perpetuating cycle because if you want to be a therapist, you have to be in therapy yourself. So you automatically <laughs> become a patient of someone else. And so, you know, psychology and understanding people was all around me. That's probably as far as I can get in terms of explaining why I chose this path. Actually, in reality, it was pretty serendipitous. You know, when I finished school, I thought I'm not going to go to university. I don't want to study. And then I ended up be doing a PhD. When I finished the PhD, I said, I don't want to stay in academia. I ended up being a professor. So I kind of go against my own plans in a way. And I think it's important to be open-minded and refute your own kind of uh, ideas and plans at times. So, you know, it ended up working fine because I am really interested in people and I'm interested in people in work-related contexts or in organizations. So, you know, even when I was studying this for my PhD, I thought looking at data and analyzing or mining a lot of kind of, you know, psychometric assessment results that I would be confined to a windowless basement that no one would care about what I have to do. But then the world organizations became very interested in being more evidence-based in how they recruit, develop, and deal with people. So in a way, I got lucky with that, and, and that's where we are today. And along that pathway growing up, when would have been the first time that you thought to yourself, life's different for boys and girls, different for men and women? When was that moment for you? 
Uh, you know, it's really interesting. It was all over me. You know, I grew up definitely in a in a chauvinistic culture and a chauvinistic environment. And I don't mean my family who were pretty open-minded actually to start the kind of the militaristic part but you know we would have barbecues every weekend which is what you do in Argentina and there are two tables still today by the way in 2019 when I was there last time and women sit in one table men on the other the women don't have wine or alcohol they drink soft drinks and sparkling water and the good cuts of the meat arrive first to the table of the man and then sort of the leftover goes you know the women are sort of one step above the dogs in the in the pecking order as people say you know, a fish doesn't know what water is so you grew up in this environment you don't realize that it kind of is chauvinistic and it's and you and, and it's just funny or normal when i left and i moved to europe I had to adjust and I saw that actually we were quite backwards and then you start to, that's kind of the spontaneous route, right? In my research, I started to look at gender differences in competence, in talent, in confidence. And then you actually look at the facts because I think anecdotes are always kind of polluted or influenced by your particular bubble and they tend not to be representative. Well, let's come to your research and talk about the approach that you took in your book. But I think it's important for us to be clear. Initially, you didn't set out to write about gender, did you? In fact, what you wanted to do is you wanted to truly see what the characteristics of good leadership are. So in a very evidence-based way, say, what makes a good leader? And then that led you to gender. Can you explain that for us? Firstly, I was always interested in leadership competence. And that was before writing the book. And when you do a lot of research, in this area, you realize that actually, contrary to what you would expect, leadership competence in any area is the exception rather than the norm. You know, the majority of leaders in any organizations are not famous for either running or managing high-performing teams, for having high levels of trust and morale in their followers and subordinates. You only need to go to Google and type in my boss is, my manager is to see what autocomplete functions you get. This, by the way, you can do in any country, in any language, and it's always very negative. So that got me interested in leadership incompetence. And then through my research, I found, you know, this pathological mismatch. The fact that the very factors that tend to seduce us in leaders are often those attributes that are responsible for their downfall. And the main one that I really focused on for many years is confidence. We love to select people, leaders for their confidence, which by the way, usually means overconfidence because if it sticks out and there is a surplus, it means they're not as good as they think. And actually that leads to reckless risk-taking and very self-serving decisions and being delusional, et cetera. And it usually ends up as, as we all know today. So that was just really an analysis of leadership incompetence. When I started paying attention to the gender literature, and it was actually when Sheryl Sandberg published her book, Lean In, that my editor at Harvard Business Review said, if I understand your research correctly, this is kind of like the opposite of what you're saying. She's saying, women, the solution to being a leader and getting to the top is be more confident, put yourself forward, and basically BS your way up, right? And so she invited me to write something to address this. And I said, look, in my view, we should not be pointing the finger at women for, in essence, not behaving like overconfident men. 
right? You know, and then and then that article did very well. But you know, the title was her idea, which is the same title of the book. You know, why do so many incompetent men become leaders? So I say, behind every incompetent man, there is usually a competent woman. This was Sarah Green, my editor, and it was quite out there for HBR to the point that it took them six or seven years to transform that article into a book. I proposed it many times. I said, you know, it kept on going to number one. Every time an incompetent man became became a leader, the article skyrocketed to most popular. So I was like, can I do a book on it? And the response was always, we can't do this. 70% of our readers are men. To which I kept saying, don't worry, because one of the characteristics of incompetence is you don't realize that it's you, that you are incompetent. <laughs> this lack of self-awareness. So as a matter of fact, that ended up happening. You know, a lot of men bought the book and said, I know people who are like this, so this is great. Then the rest is history, and that, and that led to the book. But yeah, I was interested in leadership, talent, then leadership and competence, and then this kind of gender differences that is systematically found in confidence, but not in competence. I love that mental image that there would be all these incompetent men reading that article or reading your book going, oof, doesn't apply to me. <laughs> Fantastic. So out of your research, if you were going to list the traits that actually are correlated with good leadership and good outcomes, what are they? So this is, in a way, is the most frustrating question to answer because we've known it for so long, right? You want or you should want leaders to be competent, which means to have technical expertise and be a subject matter expert in their area, right? So if your expertise is in real estate, you probably shouldn't run a country, to give you a random example, right? (laughs) Secondly, you want them to be smart and data-driven and rational and capable of objective evidence-based decisions. You want them to be curious because today, even if you are an expert, you need to know what you don't know and learn what you don't know. And that means asking questions, not talking all the time and mansplaining. You also want them to be humble so that they are aware of their limitations. And fundamentally, you want empathy so they can understand others and be considerate and caring with others. You want them to be altruistic and empathetic and uh, kind. And you also want them to be honest and ethical. Yeah, this is like the least surprising range of attributes ever. It would never be newsworthy except for the fact that there are so few people who actually display all of these attributes and they usually don't get to leadership roles. But that's good leadership. And even if you see three or four of these in one person, you can bet on their ability to do a good job or a better job than their uh, counterparts. And yet, whilst that's good leadership, we fall for, and we still have in our mind, the stereotype that a leader is confident, charismatic, swaggers, knows what to do, commands others. This is, you know, the model of leadership, and it's a very male model, and one that women have been told to try and live up to. So given your research, given what you've said about lean in, What can we do about the persistent popularity in businesses and beyond of training programs for women, the sole purpose of which is to get them to show more of these stereotypical male leadership traits, to be more assertive, to be prepared to negotiate harder in their own self-interest, to fake it till they make it and all of those kinds of things? I've got to be perfectly 
frank with you on this, you know, if I spoke as a sort of utopian dreaming academic that is only looking at things from a kind of moral purity standpoint, I would actually find all those programs distasteful because I think they're blaming those who are a victim of the of the unfairness of the system for not cheating or engaging in sort of deception and impression management, which obviously perpetuates the system, right? So, so in other words, if the system isn't fair, the solution is to fix the system, not to ask people to behave according to whatever promotes their own individual success, right? And again, I use Argentina as an example, A, because it's always easier to criticize your own country, and I'm from there, and I love my country, that's why I'm self-critical, but because it's so culturally ingrained. We have this term called viveza criolla, which means to be streetwise. And it means that, you know, you have a higher cachet and a higher status if you cheat, if you bend the rules, and, you know, if you basically are against the system and take advantage. The problem is if everyone does it, you get Argentina. You know, nothing functions, institutions have no, you know, credibility, everyone is corrupt, and it's a problem. And on that sense, you know, it's illogical to keep on asking women to partake in these workshops on how to promote themselves, how to brand themselves, how to be themselves. Well, actually, that's not the ask, and how to, you know, be more confident. But actually, pragmatically speaking, we need them to get to the top in order to change the system, right? So in a way, even though it may sound a little bit Machiavellian, my hope is that competent, honest, and ethical women who want to drive change get a little bit of help on how to stand out and brand themselves so that basically they can compete and they can get to the top because otherwise we have to wait for too long and it's not going to happen. And that's when the real ethical and moral imperative comes because I think the ethical thing is to do something you don't need to do because you're already successful. So the hope is that not the wrong women benefit from these courses, but the right women do. And when they get to the top, they still remember that they should sanitize these toxic parasitic politics to open doors for humble and talented women who hopefully shouldn't just stop working and being good at what they do and start self-promoting. I absolutely get the dilemma that do we want to change the system? Yes, we do. But given the system we have, we still want women to get to the top of it. So I get that that dilemma. And I think another aspect of the problem with these training and other courses is in many ways they don't address the way in which people receive women who conduct themselves like men. To take one example, and there's a beautiful one in your book where we say, well, women don't uh, talk as much in meetings as men. And so a solution to that would be to train women to make sure that they get a fair share of the talking time, to be more assertive, to be prepared to interrupt others if that's the way in which a meeting is being conducted rather than be the one who puts their hand up and only says something when asked or invited into the conversation. Yet you've got a wonderful example in your book where a group of female scientists were reluctant to speak in a meeting and it wasn't actually a lack of personal confidence. It was because if they said something that wasn't 100% right, they would really be repudiated by the group. Whereas if a man said something that was a little bit right and a little bit wrong, the group would come around him and try and find a way of salvaging the good bit and remedying the bad bit. So in just simply saying to women, conduct yourselves more like men, 
we're actually throwing them into a setting where that very conduct is going to get a negative reaction. Exactly. So this is what in psychology is known as the double bind as well, right? So so we point the finger at women when they're not assertive and confident and when they're not lean in. But when they do, we're often put off because uh, they seem too masculine or they don't, they don't fit traditional feminine stereotypes. So you lose both ways. Plus, if you think about all these all these kind of principles that are proud, so the double standards in a way, what's curious in a way is that we point at the right issues, but the solutions that we come up with are not the correct ones. So when we say, for instance, and this has been repeatedly found, that women only apply for jobs when they meet eight or nine out of the 10 requirements, whereas men apply when they meet one or two. Well, the solution is not to ask women to apply for jobs when they meet one or two requirements. The solution is to not hire men when they meet one or two, right? Equally, when we say men monopolize a meeting and speak all the time, well, we don't want to encourage women to do the same. We want to ask them to be quiet, right? And what's interesting about this is that inadvertently, men who don't feed the traditional masculine prototype are harmed as well, right? Because then they're also asked to behave in very alpha male manners or they're dismissed or overlooked for leadership roles. When in fact, we also need men, of course, who are more quiet, more humble, you know, more ethical and who put others first. It, it impacts good leaders on both sides from both genders. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So there is a lot to do for us to promote what is genuinely good leadership and that will have a gender advantage, but so many wrong strategies are being pursued at the moment. But I'm interested when we're talking about strategies for change, you've argued in the past against affirmative action policies like setting targets and quotas to increase the number of women in senior positions. And yet we do know that some of these strategies have made a difference. I know it's made a difference in Australian politics. It has helped get more women on corporate boards. Why do you think these quotas are problematic? First, I should, I should confess or admit that, you know, I probably changed my mind on this, not just looking at the data and the facts that you just mentioned, but also because it's naive to expect enough progress fast without them. And I think, you know, sometimes you have to force people to do what's good for them. You know, so I think if we wouldn't have fined people for not wearing a seatbelt, for example, many more people would have died in car accidents. And you would think, but why do you need to find them? Don't, you, don't they want to stay alive? You could argue the same now with masks, right, etc. So I think regulation and laws are important. And to some degree, we also need this. My skepticism or reservations come with the unintended consequences and the negative reactions. I think if you only have affirmative action or positive discrimination or quotas, it actually sadly perpetuates some of the stereotypes, you know, especially if you, if you increase the number of women, 
but you don't have the right women and you don't also select on potential and talent, you have a very short window of opportunity to prove skeptics and those who don't believe, who are biased, that they're wrong. So I think maybe they should be used in conjunction with what I actually propose, which is being more serious and more data-driven in our evaluation of leadership talent and hiring people on the basis of their competence, intelligence, curiosity, empathy, EQ, etc. And if we did that in today's world, if somehow every business, every structure adopted your approach, what percentage of male and female leaders would we see at the top? Well, you know, a very quick answer would be that we would probably have 55 to 60% of women, right, if you select leaders on talent. Why? Because they do outperform or outscore men on measures of emotional intelligence, empathy, humility, self-control, and integrity. And, you know, so that's why I say the best gender diversity intervention is to focus on talent, not on gender, which, by the way, people really hate to hear, right? So <laughs> if, the, if the title and the men bashing seemed a little bit excessive and controversial, when I tell them that actually I don't have a problem with men, I just have a problem with the lack of meritocracy, they really don't like that, right? Because the number one reaction that I typically get, usually from men when I give a talk or present on the book, is like, sorry, sorry, I, I think the best person should get the job. The best person should be promoted. I don't care if they are men or women, to which I answer, me too. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> but it's not happening, right? So imagine for a business leader to understand that the current systems are not meritocratic and that actually they already are positively discriminating in favor of incompetent men is a lot harder to digest, I think. Yeah, it is a lot more confronting. Yeah. And I do think from time to time when uh, we talk about gender equality, senior men in politics and business sort of view it as something in their gift to make a difference for women rather than something more profound about power structures and, in fact, how they got there and who they are. Correct. And, you know, I think there is this kind of a self-perceived tension or conflict, you know, much like when people talk about gender diversity, there are these two streams or schools of thought or narratives, one that focuses on it as social justice and fairness, and the other that focuses on the business case and the ROI, and they don't like each other, they don't talk to each other, because those of us, and I think most of us who want fairness and justice, a lot of these people in this group find the ROI or request for the business case distasteful, distasteful, you know, why do you need, a, you know, then it's not kind of moral. But the reality is that businesses, uh, for-profit corporations, they should care about improving efficiencies and being more profitable. And actually, that hiring more talented leaders is the best way to get there, you know. So there is not either or, but it's hard to reconcile these two very separated narratives. And can we put your analysis into the world of politics for a moment? We're obviously living in an age of fast-moving media, social media, and you've commented that this has gone hand-in-hand hand with the election of highly entertaining, charismatic, larger-than-life, even comical figures being elected to lead governments around the world. 
Now, as the Trump era ends, do you think as a global community, perhaps we now understand something a little bit more about the cost of not valuing leadership competence in politics than we did? Are you optimistic on that front? That would be great, you know, if we could uh, collectively as humanity learn from experience, which, as I say, is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted to get in a way. But I'm not so optimistic, you know, mostly because, you know, he is still the most voted American president in history. He got 73 million votes this time. And if you add them to that, you know, and I don't think that many people in his base or his supporters have changed their mind, you know, so maybe there is a small percentage of people, relatively speaking, who didn't vote four years ago and voted now. But I think, you know, the portion that perhaps found him entertaining before wouldn't have voted for him anyway, or didn't vote for him. And they don't find him entertaining now, but it doesn't change much, you know, and I think polarization is real. And of course, you have Boris being a similar kind of a case study, if you like, in the UK. And there are and there are lots of these people, you know, I think it's still very, a very dominant or influential archetype. The fact that leaders have to be charismatic and entertaining. And I'm already sad for when Angela Merkel leaves because I think maybe after she retires, we will truly miss the upsides and the benefits of a boring leader because she is competent and empathetic and rational and data-driven, etc. I think in 2021, we're appreciating the value of boredom or boring or stability because 2020 was so shocking. But unfortunately, in America and elsewhere, I think entertainment will continue to hijack politics for some time. You know, and I think, unfortunately, it, it, these cultural changes take longer time. Of course, in countries and cultures where they don't select people based on uh, their ability to run a talk show or bamboozle you in a three-minute interview or have a lots of followers in social media or the criterion is not who would you want to go for a beer with, but they look at other, those countries, you could say, are generally doing better, right? Because if you value self-criticism, curiosity, and you bet on competence rather than confidence, then you're not going to end up with very charismatic but potentially narcissistic leaders. I'm going to come now to the standard questions we ask each guest on a podcast of one's own, the first of which is to give you a fact to respond to. So your fact is various studies have shown that female CEOs are more likely to be fired than their male counterparts. A 2014 study from management consulting company Strategy And, which is part of the PwC network, revealed that over a 10-year period, 38% of female CEOs were forced out, compared with only 27% of male CEOs. This was backed up by a 2018 study in the Journal of Management showing that female CEOs were about 45% more likely to be fired than their male counterparts. What's going on? Well, you know, my interpretation of those data are, A, are we assuming that they were correctly fired, right? And that that wasn't a biased decision, but it was a reaction to objective deficits in performance where a male counterpart would have been fired in the same way, right? We have no control or whatever. But even if we assume that it was a fair decision and that it wasn't based on ingrained bias in the system, 
then there is the possibility that these women shouldn't have gotten to the top and that they were not selected on competence or talent, precisely because the system wants something else, asks for something else, for a lot of bravado, overconfidence, and, you know, the stereotype doesn't change. And also because there isn't a general focus on talent or potential. This goes back to the downside of the potential risks of forcing certain people to the top because they belong to a group when you haven't actually vetted them on talent or potential. If it goes wrong, it's a problem for everyone else who expects good role models. Normally at this point, I would ask a woman leader what's the worst misogyny she's faced. So I'm going to have to change this question slightly and ask you, what's the worst misogyny you've witnessed in the workplace? I mean, so many, right? So many. So I'm going to even contradict myself because I think today we focus a lot on kind of these things that we call microaggressions or benevolent sexism which are the ones that I'm irritated by. So, you know, I'm going to just tell you the, the one that is top of my mind because it's recent, right? And it was an article in the New York Times on how Kamala Harris power dresses. And they were just commenting on the way she's dressed. Like, for me, that is pathetic, you know? And it's like so backwards. And you would expect that maybe in the 60s, not in the New York Times. And of course, the article is intended to big her up and celebrate her. So what can you expect for everyone else? You know, On the other hand, here comes the contradiction. I think this is a sign of, of progress, right? Because in the past, of course, it would have probably been impossible for her to get there. And, you know, benevolent sexism would be, you know, like a first world problem to have, right? Because you would have blatant and explicit sexual harassment and all these things. So as much as it hurts, I think it is a sign that we are making some progress and that we're also trying to catch these things more frequently and call people out. Still so frustrating though, isn't it? So frustrating. If you had all the power in the world for a moment, what would you change for women? The system. <laughs> the system. <laughs> I would change the system so that in any career a focus on merit, talent, and potential is at the center because it isn't just leadership, by the way. It's it's so many other professions. Just take the, the very basic fact that I think women today outnumber and outperform men in virtually every subject or program of study in university and higher education, which, as we know, shouldn't be the main marker of potential or talent, but they have hijacked that and they still credentials, formal credentials, hard skills are still the number one verifier or reputational seal for talent. And yet there is this party there and we complain about, you know, underrepresentation in STEM subjects, etc. So that's hard skills. And then we know that on soft skills, they should also outperform it. So I would just, it's very generic, but you know, what I would do is change the system and try to sanitize or sterilize the parasitic system that still governs most of the rules that determine who gets to the top and who can progress in their careers. I like that big vision. And finally, I'm going to give you a Virginia Woolf quote to respond to. Virginia says, the history of men's opposition to women's emancipation is more interesting perhaps than the story of that emancipation itself. Well, I like the quote, right? And I think, I can't remember who said that, to those accustomed to privilege, equality is a threat. I think it's the same. They're saying the same things, right? So sometimes inadvertently, which is what I found most interesting, 
if you are part of the elite and and you have or enjoy privilege, you actually obstruct progress for others and you don't want any changes in status and you don't want people who are below you to go up while simultaneously considering yourself open-minded, which is really the, the biggest tragedy, right? That there are so many people who, if you ask them explicitly from an ideological standpoint, they would think that, you know, they're fighting for a better world and they want fairness, etc. But actually, once they perceive a fair amount of competition or that their status is being challenged and other people are, they get very defensive. And that's when all these prejudices and biases become pretty toxic. That's absolutely right. Thank you for what has been an intriguing conversation and for being the first man on a podcast of one's own. Well, it's been a real privilege to the point that I don't really mind if you have other men and if I'm not the last one, but uh, it's a great honour to be here regardless. You've set the standard now. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with King's Online with editing by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own.